All right, so let's take a moment and talk about suffering in general. Um, It comes up about 20 times in this letter, this short letter that Peter has written, this idea of suffering. And and if you you talk to people when we struggle, when people struggle in their faith and they struggle with doubt, um, it's amazing how often that that struggle is somehow about suffering. Super common. Now, probably the number one reason why people walk away from uh, religious experience outside maybe of just there's something they want to do that they're not allowed to do. But if it's a belief system, it often has to do with this question of suffering. This, this question of why humans suffer, why good people suffer, why innocents suffer, um, I think is a problem, uh, a question, an issue for approximately all the people. Um, there is such a thing, and including God's people suffering. Um, in fact, you're going to see in a minute that God's people's suffering can be God's will. So much for health and wealth teaching. It's hard to understand why there's so much suffering when there is a loving God. I totally agree with that. I agree that that's hard. As someone who with uh, the experience that I have in therapy, talking to people about the worst stuff that they've faced, there are definitely times when it's hard for me to wrap my brain around a loving God allowing certain things to happen. Uh, That's pretty tough. But understand, it's impossible to assign meaning to suffering unless there is a loving God. God's plan to prosper His people, His abundant life, apparently includes suffering. Rather than avoiding it, it includes it. Philip Yancey, the author from years back, um, he he talks about how, in one of his early books, he talks about how um, that people seem to have this mindset that God did a pretty good job with creation. He just made one mistake, pain. That, that he really did a pretty good job. And I think that some of us, we have that kind of intuition. You ever have that thought? You're like, why didn't they swat the mosquitoes you know, in the ark type of question? When you're like, listen, God did pretty well with this. He just missed this issue. He just, if it wasn't for pain, if it wasn't for suffering, think of how much a great time we could all have around here. Um, but in a later book, one more recent, Yancey, uh, the book called, I think it's called Why? The Question That Won't Go Away, um, or The Question That Never Dies. The... Um, uh, Yancey points out an interesting thing that happened to him. He was asked to come. There was a school shooting or some type of horrific experience, and he was asked to come speak before the people who had faced this, who experienced this. And so here he is, a Christian pastor, a Christian author and writer and thinker, and he's been asked to come and speak in this secular setting in a place where there's been this horrible tragedy. And as he's on his way there, here's what strikes him. He thinks, why don't they ever ever invite atheists to come speak at these things? Why don't they ever invite, like, hey, we've got nationally known speaker, um, you know, we've got nationally known author and atheist, so-and-so, to come share with all of us who have faced this tragedy at this horrible event, and he's going to get up and share. So, Dr. Dawkins, what do you got to say? And I have him get up and go, I mean, none of it means anything anyway. I mean, none of this matters. Your kids are just, they're just kind of random genetic mistakes, right? I mean, just random happen chance and... I mean, things die. The end. I'm going to sit down now. Like, gosh, why don't we have that guy come speak at our tragics, tragedies, right? Yancey points out there's something in us that knows, intuitively knows and even seeks out what is the purpose behind this stuff that we face. It's an interesting point that he makes. I listened to um, uh, Pastor Skip Hetz- 
Hetzig, sorry, Pastor Skip, say that, man, Pastor Skip Hetzig, speak um, on this passage we're looking at today. And uh, he kind of summarized his sermon in, in, a, in a simple little way I'll comment on in a minute, that he says there's two's do, two do's and a don't in this passage when it comes to suffering. Don't be surprised, don't be scared, but do be selective in your suffering. So we'll get to that. But I think one of the things as we look at this is to remember the secular mindset, I want you to hear this, wrap your brains around this, the secular mindset does not empty the world of its suffering. The secular mindset does empty the suffering of its meaning. This is important for us to understand. This is, we, we don't, part of why I'm a Christian is because our Bible, our God's Word does not, does not offer up empty, simple, um, uh, bumper sticker, meme type of expressions for explaining why suffering exists and why there's evil in the world and why there's pain. In fact, the opposite, every time somebody tries to offer up some cute little simple answer in the Bible, they kind of get slapped down. There's a whole book called Job about that, about the fact that we want an answer for why humans suffer the way they do, and God essentially says, it's above your pay grade. That's not very comforting, but it's still the truth. In these passages, though, Peter's trying to teach us how to be suffer-ready. The passage has been building on several concepts. In order to be suffer-ready, you're going to have to identify with Christ. You're going to have to get the sin out of the camp. When you indulge in the flesh, it makes you weak and unprepared to face suffering. We recognize the power of the gospel to save us. We remember that there is a judge who judges finally. Even when we face other judges who judge us unjustly, there is a judge who judges justly, and we can trust him. <laughs> that we need to focus our thinking so that we can pray. That we need to build a suffer-ready community, a suffer-ready church by loving one another, showing hospitality, and using our gifts in one another's lives. And then that we would worship the God of all dominion and all glory with our lives. And now, verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love, the when, I love these little passages that start with the word beloved. It's a reminder that we're not just an audience, we're a congregation. This isn't, this isn't just school. This is community. This is a body. This is, this is a group of people who, who we share in something significant, and it is that we are the beloved. So it's ironic that you would start by saying, you who are beloved, why are you surprised you're suffering? Why should we be surprised by that? Francis Chan, in his take on this passage, um, he unwraps this idea. He thinks sometimes what we do is, is we've so sold Christianity for all its positives, we forgot to mention that there are some negatives that come with being a Christian, <clears throat> which is understandable. Um, but, but when we sell it, we talk about, hey, you're going to get this special secret new friend named Jesus, and he's going to give you this abundant life and this great power and these gifts, and he's going to claim you as his very own. All of this is totally true. He says, but sometimes, sometimes we forget to mention, oh, and you're going to make some other special friends. There's this one special friend called the world, and it's going to hate you. And there's this other guy, Satan, who is an enemy, and Peter's going to describe him as a lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. Oh, by the way, when you become a Christian, you're going to attract his attention. You're going to set off all his predatory instincts. You understand, you're suiting up and you're getting on the field. You're a whole lot more likely to get hit out there than you were on the sidelines. 
You're signing up for that kind of stuff as well. And so therefore, we're surprised when we face persecution. What is this? What is this? What? No one told me this was part of the deal. I mean, Jesus did, but whoever sold the gospel to you may have forgotten to mention that part. There's a war going on, and you're picking a side. The world hates you. The deceiver is a rebellion against your side of things. This reminded me of, uh, this struck me as really interesting. So years ago, I doubt if he remembers it, when Holland was four, um, we put him in soccer. Now, those of you who know Holland, Holland is about as likable a human being as you're ever likely to meet, okay? He's very difficult not to like, I'm just telling you. I've tried, it's just really tough. No, I'm kidding. It's a, he's incredibly likable, he's, he's a great leader. And um, so when, what's interesting is, we, we ran into an issue when he was four, we put him in soccer. Now, Danny Luffelholtz, who was the, who was the lead pastor um, over at Grace UB, um, he was his coach. And so Danny, we send him out there onto the field for the first game, and in like five minutes, Danny comes walking, hauling back, who's just in tears. And we were watching. I mean, nothing happened. Like, it was just like he went out there, he played for like 10 minutes and came back crying. And he's like, I think Holland needs some help. We're like, what's up, buddy? And he goes, um, they won't share. <laughs> and we go, oh my gosh, what do we do about this? <laughs> for four years, we've taught you. Here's the morally right thing. You share right? Every time the kids ever played soccer, it involves me kicking the ball to him and him kicking the ball back. This is what you do. If he doesn't kick the ball back, hey, buddy, come on. We're good. We share, right? We're all, listen, we all, especially when you're the middle child, you learn share a lot, both directions, right? You got to share is a big deal. And they're not sharing. He kicks the ball and they take it and they go someplace else with it. Hey, whoa, hey, you're supposed to be sharing. And how do you coach a kid on that? Like, hey, all that stuff we've taught you about loving and sharing and being sacrificial, like toss that junk. No, no. Now it's all cutthroat. You take the ball, you do your thing, and leave them crying, right? That's the, all of a sudden the rules all changed, right? So Danny came up with a brilliant, by the way, just to, to, so you'll know, Danny came up with a brilliant solution, and his, Holland became all-time goalie. And he thought they were sharing with him. The entire rest of the season, when they would kick the ball to him, he was like, see, now they're sharing. So I'm not, I'm not kidding about a single part of any of that, by the way. This was but so Michael's now into football. He loves football. But imagine a football player who comes up, comes to the court, into the sidelines. He's like, they keep trying to tackle me. Hey, coach. Or, or the soldier. I mean, he just said, arm yourselves this way of thinking. The soldier who comes up is like, they're shooting at me. I went out there and they started shooting stuff at me. What's up with that? And the, 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 the commander would be like, wait, you're surprised by that? Well, did we forget to train you about something? Hey, they're going to shoot you. They're going to try to take you out. They're going to try to tackle you. Why are you surprised, Peter says, that they're persecuting you, that you're facing a, a trial like this? You didn't realize that when you signed up for this, you were signing a blank check to Jesus with your life as collateral, and he, fa- he has no hesitation signing that check and cashing it. He feels the total right justification to do that. Luke 14, he told them in advance, so therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The, the, I think it's, the, it's either NIV or the New King James that says, unless you forsake everything, you cannot be my disciple. Let's like a list of all the stuff you have, all the stuff you are, sign on the bottom line, that's mine. Well, what about my rights? Mm-hmm, mine. What about my expectations? Mine. What about what I want from my spouse and my kids? Mm-hmm. Mine. Lock, stock, barrel. You sold it all to me. 
You don't get any of that anymore. Arm yourself with this way of thinking. Dang. But it, it, here's the thing. It actually gets worse. In 4 BC, uh, the Roman general Varus uh, crucified 2,000 Jews. There were multiple times when the Jews came, I mean, when the Romans came in and, and in order to, to put down a revolt or to pacify a group of, of people who they weren't happy with, they would just crucify them in the thousands and thousands. This is 30 years before Jesus came on uh, onto the scene and began to speak. Only 30 years before, Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, that sounds cute to us. But to them, do you think there was a little bit of like, hey man, too soon? Too soon. My grandfather got crucified by the Romans. My wife got crucified by the Romans. My family was crucified by the Romans. You don't throw that kind of terminology around. Hey, if you want to follow me, you're going to need to jump out of the top of a burning building to your death and follow me. Too soon? Sorry? Been 20 years? That's what Jesus had said to his disciples. It's not very pretty. It's not very tactful. Tacitus, the, the Roman historian and senator, um, around AD 100, wrote about what happened to the Christians during the middle of the century around AD 64, around AD 64 when there was a big fire in Rome. And for whatever reason, politically, Nero could not get the stain off of himself. Everybody kept saying Nero had caused it. And uh, there's not, we don't know whether he did or not, but he couldn't get people to stop talking about that. So he, finally, he blamed it on the Christians, this new kind of uprising within the Roman culture, this Jewish sect that had started rising up and following this guy named Christus. And so he blamed it on them and began torturing and executing publicly these Christians in order to kind of cast blame for the fire on them. Tacitus wrote, um, the mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs or perished uh, and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. This was written by someone who was alive during the time. That apparently Christians were sometimes nailed on to crosses and then covered in pitch and set on fire um, to light, some people say, Nero's uh, garden parties. Things a little too soon. Five years at the latest. Some people think that First Peter was actually written in AD 64, the same year that this stuff started happening. At minimum, it was four or five years later. I think it's a little bit too soon for, for the Apostle Peter to say, Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you to test you. Too soon to reference people facing the trial of fire? It's not very tactful. You're going to be tested. I tried to, when I try to unpack this idea, when it comes upon you to test you, what a fascinating idea, the thought of being crucified and set on fire as a test. A test of what exactly? What is a test? So I started trying to think back on tests. What do I, what do I think of when I think of a test? A test asks, what are you prepared for? What do you know? What are you willing to pay to get ready? What are you capable of? Are you the real thing or are you a counterfeit? I started asking myself, like, why do we time tests? Maybe some of you are old enough to remember, I doubt if they do this anymore because it's too traumatic in the public school. Maybe they do, but you guys remember getting up in front of the class and working a problem on the board or having to spell a word in front of the class or whatever? Like, wow. I mean, that's just horrifying to consider, to think back on. 
And I was an attention seeker, and I still didn't like getting up and doing that kind of stuff. Why did we do that? To create pressure. What can you do when you face this? What comes out of you when you get squeezed? How do you handle that? What are you prepared for? What is the pressure? What are you? Which one are you for real? Mark, in Mark 4, Jesus unpacks the parable he had taught about the, the four different types of soil. That when the truth comes to, to you, you're one of these four types of soil. And Jesus, it's, it should be comforting us that Je- these are the four types of soil Jesus ran into. Not everyone converted who Jesus preached to. So if Jesus went to all these people, and then he starts unpacking it. And listen to the language of it. This is, again, this is just Peter unpacking for us in this letter what his master, rabbi, teacher, savior taught him. So listen to what Jesus had said way back in Mark, where we have back in Mark 4. Mark 4, starting in verse 16 is where I'll pick it up. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. Then the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy... They have no root in themselves, but they endure for a while. Then (coughs) when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. That's testing. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. He teaches about four soils. The first one, nothing gets through, nothing like concrete. Number two, it gets in and it looks good for a while, but it can't stand the test. It fails at the first test. Number three, it looks good, it gets in, but it's too tempted towards unfruitfulness, the riches of the world. I feel like we've, all we have faced for the last 200 years, number three, being number three. We're, we're, we're good at being soil that looks good, but we're so tempted by the world, we're not fruitful. I mean, we're too busy. We got too many other things. We got too many other activities. We got family sports and we got job stuff and we got all these different things that we've got to be involved in and invested in. And it chokes out our opportunities to really be someone who grows and spreads and reproduces ourselves into the world. But I think, I think what Peter's warning us against is number two. It looks good for a while, but the pressures and persecution. I think you can look good for a long, long, long time with wealth, with number three. I think number three, you can look good for a long, long time. Number two, you will be tested very quickly. I don't think it takes long for that to fall apart. And Peter's saying, why are you surprised by this? The, the, the language here implies like, why is your mouth hanging open? Why are you so caught off guard by this? What struck me is that I was looking around for a really good explanation of this concept. It turns out this guy named Peter wrote one. First Peter 1, 6 and 7 In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, someone to unpack that for you next year when we do the the Scott Fest, go, go talk to the weaponsmith about that passage. Read it out loud to him and have him explain to you what's going on. Metal being tested by fire be proven. You can, or you can go back a few weeks or months and look at when we preached through that passage and we discussed that. See, we come here and we sing many of the things that many of us would then walk away from the minute, the minute it cost us something to say it. If someone was standing around waiting to persecute us to declare that the Lord is good, that faithful forever, that He is sovereign over us, if that was going to cost us something, many of us would just stop singing. We recoil from suffering and Peter's going to say instead we should be rejoicing. 
verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here, this word rejoice has the, the root concept of grace in the midst of it, a good gift. But it's not just an event, it's under the condition of it. When we, on our podcast this week, we were talking about it, and Paul brought this up, that the, it's, it's a condition, it's not something that's just like there and gone, it's the state, the state of living in this grace, of living in this joy. Um, uh, again, Francis Chan was told a story that was just fascinating, fascinating, I mean, his sermon on it, I recommend you look up Chan's sermon on this same passage. But he, he tells a story, a long version of it, I'll tell you a short version, that of a group of missionaries who were kidnapped in Afghanistan and put in a pit, and one at a time were being pulled out and killed over a period of days and weeks. They'd be pulled out and executed and pulled out and executed. And they'd, they'd snuggled, one of them had smuggled in a copy of the Bible, and they tore it, there were 23 of them, they tore it to 23 different pieces, and and spread it amongst them so they could read through little sections, whatever they had, and them had a minute here or a minute there being un, not being watched closely. Here's what strikes So at some point, I don't know how many of them were, were actually in the end executed, but a handful of them at least got away and escaped it. <clears throat> and Chan talks about the man who he was talking to had been one of the men in those pits, one of the men in the pit. Said what was wild was that people who else had been in the pit would periodically contact him and say, don't you wish we could go back? Don't you wish we could be in that pit again? Man, I miss being in the pit. They talked about how they had sought to recreate the kind of joy and nearness to Christ that they experienced in that pit, and they couldn't do it. There was no way to recreate that closeness to their Savior as they had under those experiences. This is about the closeness to Christ. We experience the comforter the most when we are uncomfortable. But all of our lives are spent trying to not be uncomfortable. I think too often that's actually what therapy becomes, this weird, um, this weird band-aid that, that, that people come in so they don't feel uncomfortable and somehow we help them. And probably what we need to be doing is saying, no, I think uncomfortable is the right feeling. I think you need to be uncomfortable sometimes. I think we all need that at times. We, I think God is going to bring this stuff into our life necessarily. We need these things. This isn't particular to Peter. The key is following Jesus. Listen, listen to this. What, so Peter says we should rejoice in our suffering. He's not an oddball in the Bible. Listen to what James says. The half-brother of Jesus, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How about what the Apostle Paul says about it? I had a lot to choose from with this one, but this is the one that just, this is unpacking this concept in a way that I don't know. I really I don't know that I had gone to this passage and understood it the way I did this time. In uh, 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the favorable time. Hey, these are the good days. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Not, by the way, not with words. But here's how we commend ourselves. By great endurance, in affliction, hardship, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, and then he keeps going on with virtues in the midst of these, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God, the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet we are true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live. 
as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This is a man comfortable with suffering. Jesus even said it, Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. <clears throat> Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, so for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, I don't know how to say this, and I think there's still plenty wrong with it, but something that stuck in my head, I was trying to wrap my brain about how I think about suffering especially suffering around the world, which like I shared some stories um, earlier, <clears throat> I, think, I think I unfortunately fall into this weird version of like uh, fantasy athletic, fantasy football or fantasy sports in my brain about suffering around the world. But like I, I read about people suffering in other places, and it's like I, I feel like I get some kind of partial credit by reading about it. Like, hey, I got 21 points today from that, foot, from that quarterback. No, you didn't. They did all the work, trust me. You didn't earn any of that. That's not, and yet, so how do I, I'm proud of them, I engage with them. Do I remember to pray for them? And am I learning from them how to be suffer ready is the real question. Am I growing in my understanding? When I read about that, I had this, this image this week of, of Christians going back for 2,000 years, spread around the world, tens of thousands suffering and dying every year. And as we start facing just the tiniest bit of the hardships here, just as we start facing the, the loss of opportunities or the loss of jobs or the loss of relationships or the, or the missing out on some other opportunity for the cause of Christ and those persecutions, that these people are all standing there going, yeah, welcome to the party, pal. We've been, we've been doing this a long time. Learn from us. Peter's warning us, be prepared. If you are insulted, verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ... You're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. When we suffer, it's the reminder that we aren't alone. But let none of you suffer as murderers or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. This is the spirit of glory resting on us. Another, yet another identification with the person of Jesus Christ who had the spirit descend on him like a dove. Suffering and spirit and glory mixed in together here for us. This is when Heidzig pointed out that though, we should not, that though we should not be surprised or scared, we should be selective. Peter wants our suffering to be about Christ, not our character flaws. There's no glory for Christ in us suffering for our criminal behavior. It really makes me wonder. I mean, this is like the third or fourth time Peter has made this point. It really makes me wonder, like, how big a problem was this in the early church? That, like, someone would commit a murder, get arrested, and then go, I'm being persecuted for Jesus. Like, no, you're not. No, 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 you're in prison because you're a murderer. It has nothing to do with the cause of Jesus Christ. I cheated on my taxes, and now the IRS is persecuting me. No, no, no that's not how that works. I got drawn into some worldly political conspiracy theory, and now people are persecuting me for my political views. <coughs> no, no, that's, that's, not, that's not Christian persecution, sorry. <clears throat> not what this is about. I murdered or I stole, or I'm just an evil person. That's the third word in this list. Just, just evil people. I'm just an evil person. And then it just strikes you as so funny. Or a busybody. Murderers, thieves, evil people, and busybodies, right? Don't you usually lump those all together in your head? You know, the meddlers. The people who, people who really annoy you. I, I really struggle with why Peter throws this in here. I don't know if part of this is meant to throw us off. Like we go, wait, I'm sorry, what? Wait, 
Go back to that part. I'm struck. The commentaries all are kind of all over the map, but most of them point out that probably this is Peter's point of making. Listen, it's bad that we have murderers and thieves, but what really, what really disrupts the church? Meddlers. What really throws off the gospel? Busybodies. What really causes people to Christians to receive persecution that they think is about being Christian, but it's not about being Christian. It's about the fact that you're an irritating person. You're an annoying, irritating person who you've got your, your nose in other people's business nonstop. And then people come along and they punch you in the face for it and you're like, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, not really. You're suffering because you're an irritating person. No one likes you, right? That's why you're suffering. It's your fault. Like this, is, this seems to be the language that's going on here. It's really powerful. The, the Greek here includes the word episkopos. You probably thought like, that sounds like a domination. It is. Yeah. It's, that means overseer or bishop is what the word means. And this is saying someone that, that's interesting because it's not your own episkopos. It's not, it's not your own bishop, not your own overseer. So I would read that word and naturally my intuition would be to say, oh, someone who doesn't, doesn't have discipline, they don't take care of their business. But that's actually not how the Greeks used it. They used it to mean someone who doesn't take care of their business because they're too busy being in other people's business. They're too busy trying to enable people. They're taking care of people who should be taking care of themselves. They're too busy busy integrating their lives into somebody else's life versus leading the life that Christ has given them to take care of. It's it's the people who who they can't wait to kind of kind of pluck at the speck in your eye with this big honking log hanging out of their eye. That's what's going on with us. And when we do this, and by the way, I could probably, although I'm not willing to risk it, I could probably say, hey, any, all the murderers in the room, raise your hand. I'd probably be pretty safe. I don't want to risk it, so I'm not going to. But the, all the, the thieves, we'd get a few hands. A few of us would be like, yeah, I remember when I did that. Yeah, I've, I've, I've stolen. Evil people, I hope there's not a lot of you here. Um, I mean, if you're here in the right place, I mean, I'm glad you're here, you hear the truth, but, but like, but man, if I go, how many of us have found ourselves disrupting relationships because we couldn't, we couldn't keep track of the things we're supposed to be taking care of in our lives and we keep trying to mess with other people's lives? Man, the whole room, we'd all be raising our hand like, yeah, that's me. We've all cost relationships that way. I'm too busy trying to fix everybody else's problem. This number in church is the biggest telltale sign, right? Hey, did you hear that part? Man, I hope you heard that. If you've got that in your head, that's what's being talked about here. And it's super disruptive. And I suspect, here's why I think it's there. I think we all know that most often when we face persecution, it's actually because of a trait like this in us and not because of our devotion to Jesus Christ. And when that's the case, Peter's going like, I mean, don't count that one. Make sure when you suffer, it's for the cause of Christ, not just because you're an unlikable person. Not just because you're a meddler and you're in other people's business. Backseat drivers, second-guessing quarterbacks, getting outside of comforting somebody else's spouse, punishing somebody else's child, the arrogant, presumptuous, derisive, destructive type of person who gets persecution, usually from other Christians too. Love, don't merely interfere. Make sure if you're persecuted, it's because you're a Christian Too often Christians have been out of line, hypocritical, unnecessarily offensive, or just plain ignorantly wrong, and then we call it persecution when we're corrected or mocked, and that doesn't count. We should not be surprised, not scared, but look at verse 16, yet if anyone does suffer as a Christian, 
Big, big moment, by the way, in the Bible. That word only shows up three times in the Bible, the word Christian. They were called believers or followers of the way for a long time. And there was a term for people who followed Caesar. Little, it literally was called Little Caesars. Sorry. <laughs> now you're all hungry. But it's like, it was literally little, that's what the word means. Christian means little Christs. And because the little Christians wouldn't act like and wouldn't proclaim the name Little Caesars because, because we wouldn't call ourselves that, little versions of the emperor, which is what everyone wanted to be, and the Christians would not use that terminology, that they instead became known as little versions of, of Christ, Christianus, and, and so that was the name given, and early Christians very quickly were like, yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's, that'll work. I mean, it could have gotten them killed. Being willing to be called a Christian, rather than a little version of Christ, rather than a little version of Caesar, was a crime. Everyone had to swear loyalty to Caesar like that. But anyway, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If you suffer for being a Christian, that's amazing. You should not be ashamed. So not surprised, not scared, I would add to Heidzik, and not ashamed. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. And think about the significance of who is saying this. This week, as, as we were looking at this, and we were talking about it, and Paul pointed out, like, this, this is Peter the denier who in the presence of Jesus Christ denied him, cursed to deny him, lied to deny him. If anyone should bear the shame of being someone who refused to suffer for the cause of Christian, it would be Peter, the ultimate example of someone refusing to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, is Peter. And Peter's saying, but I'm getting a second chance. He let me come back, and I get to suffer for him again. I get to try again. I get to, this is a man who understands grace at an amazing level. Grace enough, and I know we don't often go this way with our brain, but grace enough that Jesus would say, I'm going to give you another chance to die for me. And you might think like, I don't, I'll pass on that one. Peter says, the ultimate expression of grace is the fact that I get to be known throughout history as I, I am the idiom for denier. Literally the meme, that's me. I own the company. Other people talk about denying. I denied Christ three times in his presence, lying and cursing. That's me. And now I get to suffer with him. You see why he's excited about it, why he's thinking. He's been restored to the point of being allowed to suffer with Christ. He's accepted the removal of his shame, and you can too. We can too. <clears throat> we could glorify with God in all this. For this time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Wow, by the way, wow. Not a lot of church t-shirts with that one. It is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. For if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Judgment's being used here as an interpretation for suffering. What does suffering mean? Judgment, that's what it means. Why is God allowing it? It is judgment of the household of God. It's the testing we just talked about. When the pressure's up and when the heat is on, what will still be here? When they start crucifying us, who's still in? Can we identify with Christ even if it means identifying to his suffering? God's willing to send his prophets and servants to suffer. Sometimes it's his will for us to do so. Noah, Jesus, us, all given those examples. If he is willing for his people to suffer, by the way, Paul wants to point out, if he's willing for his people to suffer, if the righteous are scarcely saved, he's quoting Proverbs 11 here, if the righteous are scarcely saved, barely saved, I mean, if those of us who are righteous are saved in spite of ourselves, which is exactly the truth, think about the unrighteous. 
What's going to happen with the ungodly? If Christ is willing for his children to suffer like we suffer, you don't want to be his enemy. If those of us who he loves and died for, if he's willing to let us suffer to the point of death, to be tormented to the point of death, to be tortured to the point of death, listen, you don't want to be on the wrong side of judgment with this guy. Suffering here on earth makes us long for heaven, but the suffering of hell will make people long for earth. They will desperately want to be out of hell, even if it means coming back to things like cancer and abuse. But there's a much better option. Peter doesn't leave us here very long. Man, we may suffer as his children, but it's a far sight better than suffering as his enemies. So verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There it is. It can be God's will for us to suffer. God's will isn't only to prosper us in this lifetime. Eternally, yes. But it's not, it's not such that we would be sick or not ill or not diseased or not persecuted. Of course we are. Sometimes it's His will for us to face these things. Anyone who tells you otherwise has apparently lost their copy of 1 Peter. The question is, can I trust Him when I face those things? Will I trust Him when I face the persecution and face the suffering and face the death? Will I be reminded, no, there's a God who loves me even though this place isn't my home? I'm going to steal one more idea from Skip um, from his sermon that I really liked. He, he communicated how, offense, how offended he was at the idea. So what do we call it? Like when there's a flood or when there's hail or an earthquake or something. Um, in the insurance world, what are those called? They're not usually called natural disasters, actually. They're called acts of God. That's what they're called, right? They're called acts of God. And Skip was offended by this. Not that they're not acts of God. He's like, they are. But here's what Peter's pointing out here. Listen, Yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is this. But here's the deal. Every sunrise and sunset that you glory in is an act of God. The first breath of every child is an act of God. Every good thing that comes into our life like that is an act of God. It isn't one without the other. It's all of it. God is working in our lives. As I read through the passage one more time, here's what struck me. Okay, In a minute, we're going to stand in honor of His Word and to focus our attention in. And I'm going to read to the passage again. And here's what's wild. I got to this stage in writing the sermon, and I rewrote it, and I reread it, and a word jumped out at me that I had not noticed. I've said it every time we've read through it, but you probably didn't notice it either. I did not notice it. The sermons that I saw on it, they don't reference it. The commentaries, most of them didn't make much of an issue of it. But it's the unifying connection to the next section. We're suddenly going to be talking about elders in the church. What? So stand with me, if you will. When I'm done, when I'm done reading this and praying, I'll sit down and uh, or, or stand down here, and that's a good time for you to respond with whatever the Spirit is leading you in. So be listening to what the Spirit has for you. You may want to sing. You may want to come pray here. You may want to pray over there in the corner with somebody. You may, if you're a, if you're a, a person who's been through our welcome home team and you're ready to join this dysfunctional family, we'd love to have you come up here and. Let us know you're ready to join. Whatever it is that the Spirit's speaking to you. But first listen. What do we share in here? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who, have no, who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will be entrusted, and to, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Did you hear it? It's the word glory. This will link us to the passage we start next the, about elders, etc., but it's it's all under the heading of what Peter's going to call the fellowship of his glory. Being united in his suffering gives us the opportunity to be united in his glory. And this is a God who does not share glory lightly. And yet somehow we get to be a part of that. That's an amazing idea that there will come a day where a crown may be laid upon our heads. And it's a crown of glory that should be his, but he's going to share it with us because of who he is.